Welcome to Coinology, the podcast. You ain't getting no money if you're constantly worried about what everybody else got to say. If you constantly got your eyes on what everybody else doing, you ain't getting no money. When it comes down to closing the deal, I get it done. Everything one. Welcome to Coinology, the podcast. Hey, welcome, welcome to a new episode of Coinology Season Trey. I'm so excited to be sitting across from none other. I don't even need to introduce him, but I am Mr. Lateris Whitfield. Welcome. Hey, welcome. thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, we're going to have fun today. Oh, we're going to have a ball. I know you're used to being over here in this seat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. You're here on a, on a press run? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how's that been? It's been great. I mean, to be able to go out, get out of my comfort zone of my podcast and allow people to deep dive into my story. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed it. Podcasting. How long have you been doing that? Only three years. Only? Only three years. I, I launched my podcast April the 15th of 2020 at the top of the pandemic. And God told me to make me my own client. Mm-hmm. And so I had a video production company. I was shooting content for other people. And then God said, make you your client. And so we were sheltered in place. Mm-hmm. And I had this whole studio. So I said, all right, let me turn the camera on myself and start sharing my story. So did your podcast immediately, if you guys don't know if you're under a rock, he owns <laughs> and he is the podcast creator of Dear Future Wifey. Were you guys immediately a phenomenon? No, it started off where it was the the slow grind. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand how to market a podcast, so I just focused my energy on showing up authentic and telling my truth. Mm-hmm. And so I said, one thing that I can control is how I represent myself and operating in authenticity. Mm-hmm. And so I can't make a person watch the the podcast. I can't make someone listen to it on audio platforms. And so I said, I'll just show up, make sure the quality is there. And um, three months later, it went from 900 subscribers to 10,000 mm-hmm. in August. Matter of fact, the three-year anniversary of me hitting 10,000 subscribers on YouTube happened in the month of August. And then September, I grew another 10,000, and I went into October with about 25,000 subscribers. So what did you do differently to jump from 900 to 10,000? Something had to shift. I did an interview with my good buddy, Jay Barnett, and I didn't okay, even know him Jay, at the time. Yeah, I know Jay very Yeah, well. so he came on the podcast, mm-hmm. and we just talked. Mm-hmm. It was it was like a rare moment for people, men, women, to hear two men converse about our our fears, things that, that hurt us in our childhood, and we just talked, and it resonated with people, and it was like, wow, I've never heard men just speak like that, and it was called Hill Bro Hill. You know, Jay is a phenomenal speaker. To see how he has progressed over the years, I'm very, very proud of that. Yeah. But let's go back. Let's go all the way back, okay? Latarius, right. where are you from? Dallas, Texas. Dallas, okay. All right, are you from a nuclear family as far as two mom, a mom and a dad and yep, um, church every Sunday? Yep, church every Sunday, but my father wasn't in attendance. So okay. it was just, uh, matter of fact, my mom didn't even go that much. It was, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, the white Pentecostal. Really? And so, yeah, and so the church band would come pick us up, and my mom would just put us on the church van, and we would go to church. Okay, was it grandma? Somebody had to make, who was it that was saying you needed to be at church? My mama. 
my mama my mama would always send us to church mm-hmm. and um so from a young age i was going to church mm-hmm. um we started out of course my mom and dad was going to church and then my dad got his feelings hurt in church one day and never came back what happened he was um back in the old days you would go to church and visit and they would always ask like do we have any visitors here and they would ask at the end of service mm-hmm. and they'll ask him um, do you have a little word you would like to share? Mm-hmm. And then he would jump in and share a quick little sermonette and it would make the audience just go crazy. And so after that happened repeatedly, the you know the different pastors that he would visit, one pastor heard his feelings like, thank you, Brother Whitfield, I've already preached today. Mm. And he knew he had a huge calling over his life to, to minister and to preach. And so when he was, when he felt, when he felt like he was uh, criticized for it, he was just like, you know what? Uh, he just never overcame that for some mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So did he have a lot of, uh, did you hear a lot of negativity in your household about church? No, not at all. My Even my dad was still like, he's 10 toes down with the with the word. And he would always preach to somebody on the, on the corner if someone mm-hmm. came to talk to him at the convenience store or whatnot. And, um, you know, my mom was always anointing my pillow when I was in my wayward stage, toting mm-hmm. guns to school and all that. She would always come to anoint my pillows and say, what happens in the dark comes to the light. Mm-hmm. And that's so what I do. So you're probably a firm believer then that you don't have to necessarily be in the house, the church in order to be a man of God or a woman of God. I actually believe the opposite. I believe that, yes, you can, you don't have to be there per se, but it does help with building community. Mm-hmm. I believe that this faith walk is not to be done alone, mm-hmm. that we need a body of believers. It's almost like going to war. The United States would never just send one person to go to war. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 all the troops would be uh, engaged in it. They'll have the Air Force. They'll have the Navy. They'll have everybody come mm-hmm. when there's a war. And so that's what I believe, that this spiritual war that we're in, it takes all of us to come together and uh, keep each other lifted up. Okay. So brothers and sisters, how many? I have two older brothers, two younger sisters that I grew up with. Um, and then later on in life, I found I had another sister and two other brothers by by way of my daddy. Papa was a Rolling Stone. Come Papa on, somebody. Rolling, so uh-huh. how, yeah. So yeah. How did how did that? How did you find out about them? Got a call my senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. My brother called me and was like, "My speak to the uh, White Whitfield," and I said, um, "He's not here right now." My ask who's calling. He said his son Harold. It was like, dun, 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 dun. Mm. felt like it was one of those after school <laughs> programs or something. I said, oh, wow. And I was like, huh? And he's like, you never heard of me? I was like, no. Mm-hmm. And so we had a conversation real quickly. And then when my dad came home, I asked, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my son that's, that's down there in Beaumont. I was like, well, you wasn't going to tell us? Like, you just, mm-hmm. you know, and then. And mom and dad was still together? Yeah, mom and dad was still together, always known. Like, he was an older brother. Mm-hmm. So um, he's way older than me. So um, he was born before my mom and dad got married. Okay. So yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. So he did not have children while right. he was married, but he just did not share with you guys that you had a family outside. Three, three other ones. He okay. had by three different women. Okay. You know, and okay. then he was married before. So he had mm-hmm. one child by his ex-wife and then the other two, like he said, he like, I was, I was out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did that change how you viewed your father? 
Um, no, not really, because I didn't really think that highly of him to begin with. So okay, was, so you and your father <laughs> didn't have a good relationship. It was it was interesting because it was one of those things where we weren't close. Mm-hmm. It was just like I had a great deal of respect for him just because that's what I was taught, you know, mm-hmm. just respect your father and that type of stuff. But he was never like heavily involved in my life even though we grew up in the i mean i grew up under his roof he was never like hey son let me teach you how to drive let me do those type of things it was like i always had to fend for myself Mm -hmm. and so um now we're a lot closer Mm -hmm. because uh well i'll say for several years when i was 30 years old i went to his house sat on the edge of his bed he was laying in the bed asleep i woke him up and i forgave him for not living up to my expectations as a father Mm -hmm. because my father didn't even know who his dad was and so here he was trying to be what wasn't modeled for him Mm -hmm. and it was to 2020 was when my sister and I gifted him with the knowledge of who his dad was and we did this um, ancestry.com test found out that we had some uncles and some aunts that we've never met and connected with them and lo and behold, the rumored father that he had was actually his father. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you probably also understand this, that most fathers, especially during that time, as long as they were providing a roof over your head, yep. they felt as if they were doing the job of a father. Right, right. right. Did This expectation that you had of him, was it something that you saw on TV? Yeah, uh, good old Cosby show. Uh-huh. Cosby show told me that uh, that's what a good father is. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that's what a good mom is. And then I was in this juxtaposition of the Cosby show and good times. Mm-hmm. And so I, I saw the rich side of life and then I saw the struggle. And that's what I lived in. I lived in the struggle side, but I wanted to be like the Cosby show. I mm-hmm. wish I had that family, mm-hmm. you know. And then outside of that, then at times where I would fantasize, I would wish I had the different strokes type of life. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish I had a Mr. Drummond that came and adopted me and gave me this great affluent lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so TV really shaped my ideology on what parenting looked like and what wealth looked like and what uh, financial upbringing looked like. And I know we're talking about it from a negative point of view, but actually what it did too was give you something to visualize and dream and hope for. Totally. Because if you had not seen that, you would not have known that that was something that you could potentially go after. Absolutely. Right? So I think there's two sides. I think the fact that you were able to later on in life come to grips with your father and learn to love him for who he was and what yep. he could give you at that time. Totally. So did you go off to college or what was life after high school? I after high school, I had fathered a daughter two weeks before I graduated high school. She came to my graduation, and I said I didn't want to be a father that was absent. I said I'm going to be present. So I chose the route of going immediately into the workforce and being 100% present in my daughter's life. And okay, so I you did. were a teenage father. Yep, 18 okay. years old. Okay, so I know that came with a lot of struggles. Okay, came with a whole lot of struggles. Mm-hmm. But it taught me how to care for the heart of a female mm-hmm. because my daughter and I, we had such a strong and still do have such a strong, strong bond. Mm-hmm. And that was, it all worked out because a lot of times I would look back and say, maybe I should have went to college and maybe I should have did this, but I watched all things work together for the good of them that mm-hmm. love God. And it just all worked out. Mm-hmm. And so did you marry the mother of your daughter? Nope. Wanted to, but she, um, at that time she was, I was very heavy into church, just gave my life to Christ 
Christ that fu- so my daughter was born April the 28th December the 22nd of 1996 was when I rededicated my life to Christ and so even though the mother and I wasn't together I tried to rekindle that love and I was like hey listen maybe we can go to church together we can do this and we can you know uh, get married one day she's like I don't do all that church stuff like oh that's not me and so at that point I realized that we would be unequally yoked had we explored that and I was like no okay well that's cool and so we just try to foster a healthy co-parenting situation Mm -hmm. which was a struggle yeah Yeah. I can imagine at 18 you guys probably didn't know what that looked like right right and then you came from a home with a two-parent household so trying to adapt to that was probably even more difficult right and she came from a single parent uh, home with just a mother so Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was always a, a struggle. Do you feel that that was a part of the struggle, though? Her her viewpoint of a purpose of a man? Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Because it was hard for her to even receive me showing up as a father in my daughter's life, mm-hmm. you know, um, because she never had a relationship with a father. And so it was it was just it was just a very strange time when I think back about that. It's just and that's why I try to encourage young men don't go out and. Um, prematurely have kids with with women you don't you don't it's, it's like you're taking on a heavy burden burden you're walking into a ram that you're not even aware of because you're 18 years old still trying to figure out who you are your frontal lobe is not even developed until about 21 to 23 so how can you make logical decisions but you've made this permanent decision by bringing this child into this world Mm -hmm. so you move on from that you're 18 at this point i'm sure you're probably taking odd and in jobs right yeah what are some of the jobs that you took on at 18 i started working at a telecommunications company Mm -hmm. i was uh Telemarketing. I was calling people, trying to get them to sign up for credit card services. I would have people. See, people don't remember this when you had to get long distance service. You'll call people mm-hmm. and you'd be like, hey, we're offering a plan of mm-hmm. nine cents a minute <laughs> or 10 cents a minute or 15 cents a minute. Mm-hmm. And like, well, we're already paying 13 cents a minute. Well, let, let's see if we can match that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I was that guy that would be calling to try to get you to switch over your long distance service mm-hmm. uh, to whatever service provider I was offering at the time. Now, were you on child support at this point? Yes, I wouldn't put my Myself on child support. Oh, you wouldn't put yourself on child support. I put support. myself on child support okay. because the mother and I, uh, she wouldn't allow me to see my, my, my daughter. She was uh, weaponizing my daughter uh, against me. And so I thought it'd be best for me to go put myself on child support because that's the only way that they would enforce uh, visitation is if it was documented. Now, what was she angry about? Because if she didn't want to get married, it wasn't as if you didn't want to be with her. So what was that? What was the? I, I just think it was just a power thing. I, I I have no idea. Even looking back at that, I just I just have no idea. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, whatever she was going through, which I'm not privy to know what it was, but it was it was whatever. Because she would one minute she'll bring the child over and say keep her for as long as I want, and then 24 hours later she'd come back and and get the kid back and I was just like this is this is weird so it was it was a very uh trying time during that season so you put yourself on child support to make sure that you could be involved in your daughter's life right okay so then we passed through that phase when did you meet your wife your ex-wife I met my ex-wife when I was 21 years old so shortly thereafter yeah okay yeah about three years later I met her but we didn't get married till I was 28 so we dated for about seven years Mm -hmm. she was four years older than me and we met during uh at that time I was heavy into theater and so I was an actor and I was acting in this play called The Marriage and she was the stage manager and we had met then and things just 
escalated quickly. I was like, okay, she's really cool. I like her. I like her vibe. I like what she's about. Strong Christian woman. And um, started dating seriously about six months after that. And then um, and then about five, six, about seven years later, I got married at 28. So Now, what I married. heard you say is I liked her. Strong Christian woman. But I didn't hear you say I fell in love with her. No, because I felt like I didn't even understand the framework of what love meant. Mm -hmm. It's like... When I married her, I married her from a very logical space. Mm -hmm. I kept saying, this is a woman I could trust. And that was a big thing that I will always talk about. I would say that I love her, but I wasn't quite in love with her. Mm -hmm. You know, it was one of those things where I say I trust her. So this is somebody that I wouldn't have to hide my finances. I wouldn't. This is somebody I just know that has clear intentions and pure intentions. Mm -hmm. And so um, I used to feel guilty about that, that when I married her I didn't feel like I was in love with her mm -hmm. do you feel like that's mandatory in a mar a successful marriage do you feel feel like you have to have these butterflies in your stomach uh no I think that for different personality types different things show up that's why we have so many different love languages mm -hmm. you know and some people are very just logical they they're like this is a decision I'm making. This is a woman that I care about, or this is a man I care about. I don't have all the butterflies that I may have had with, with Tyrone that I dated in high school. Now I'm a grown woman. I realize that marriage takes work. And so we vetted each other and we think it's a wise decision for us to get married, but the butterflies may be absent. And so you find a lot of people that get married and, um, they may have the butterflies, but then they don't know how to function when those butterflies are gone. Mm -hmm. They go like, have I fallen out of love with that person? No. Now you've gotten to your you've transitioned from the honeymoon phase to the real life, the real mm -hmm. dealings of life. And so uh, just submit to each season. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have butterflies, it's great because you may have that that that. That little thing that makes you so attracted to that person or even that person's presence. And so there's not there's no good or bad either way. Mm -hmm. It's just whatever works with your personality. And, and you got to look at it, too, because this whole falling in love, butterflies, that's a westernized thing. Yeah. Right. Because you look at other parts of the world. There's arranged marriages. Right. These individuals don't even know each other and they have a lower divorce rate than yes. we have here. So you have to actually question whether or not the butterflies are really getting in our way. Yeah. I've talked to uh, have an episode coming up with a Nigerian brother and sister mm -hmm. who said that his mom taught him. Now, they're going against arranged marriages, but the um, this guy named Chris, he's on uh, this season of Rated Love. Mm -hmm. And the mom said, marry now, love will come later. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was like, what? Like, what is that? He said, no, marry now, because at the end of the day saying that you get married for legacy purposes. You need to have kids. You need to make the family big. You need mm -hmm. to make sure that you're in alignment with their family so we can all work together as a village and build our community up from a financial standpoint. And sooner or later, you're going to fall in love. Mm -hmm. That's their ideology. I think that may also come from a perspective of respect. If you can respect the person that's sitting across from you, you can learn to love them. If you don't respect, so let's say that the person that you had the butterflies for, you lose respect for them. Yep, the they can't provide. Don't for you um, they make you feel uh, uh, you know vulnerable um, you don't feel as if they protect you you can have butterflies but if you lose that respect yeah then the love is gone yep. right so I think that's what mom may be saying 
Yeah, and and based on their custom, mm-hmm. you know, it's not heavily uh, spoken about about falling in love. Like you just don't hear people in in African countries talking about, oh, we just fell in love with each other and we went. And it, mm-hmm. it's not that. It's very methodical. It, it's very methodical. It's very uh, legalistic to a degree because they literally sit down with other families. They have mm-hmm. conversations. A lot of their uh, spouses are chosen at topper stages yeah, yeah. they be like you're going to marry this person mm-hmm. they'll start having y'all play with each other as mm-hmm. young and you start like grooming yeah very early on and the next thing you know it's like oh no you know you're gonna marry her right mm-hmm. you're like mm-hmm. okay you know what mm-hmm. i'm saying it's not- i think the problem with that is in some of the cultures some of the men can be like 30 years old and they're grooming a baby yeah. to be that is when i start now, saying Ooh. pedophilia yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's given so okay you 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 get married all right no butterflies are there. No. Nope. But there's respect. 100%. Right? How long were you married? Uh, two weeks shy of 10 years. Okay. And what would you say the biggest challenge was in your marriage as to why you're not married today? Understanding the gravity of what marriage entails. We get married and we say these vows, but don't really understand what those vows truly mean. Mm-hmm. When we hear for better or for worse, what does that really look like when when worse hits your doorstep? You know, how do you navigate through those spaces? And so for me as a young 28-year-old man who had all the good intentions of marrying this woman and covering her and never cheating on her and honoring my marriage. Well, when the worst moments began to happen, that's when I felt the need to step out and operate in the low form of uh, a lack of integrity. The worst moments. What were those worst moments? Where I felt like my my needs weren't being served. When I felt like my wife was selfish in certain areas. And when I felt like, you know, uh, here I am giving up myself, but I didn't feel like it was being reciprocated. So do you feel, because I, I hear men, so this is what I hear. I hear in marriage, men need sex. Women need affection. Do yes. you agree with that? 100%. So do you feel as if what you were not providing to her well, what she wasn't providing to you was sex. Yes, among other stuff that I don't really go into. So the question I have for you is what were you not providing for her? A place of safety. Mm-hmm. A place of uh, where she could rest in me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I look back, hindsight being twenty twenty, I realized that I didn't provide that safe space for her to be able to willingly give to me the uh, the desires of my heart. I believe that love is reciprocal, but it should start off from a selfless standpoint mm-hmm. where we say, listen, whether I'm not having my needs met at all, I'm going to continue to serve and give to you. Mm-hmm. And um, while that sounds great, how long will you actually go through that process without having your needs met. Mm-hmm. And so what I realized, I mean, early on that I was trying, I was trying to serve her from a place of financial needs, but never really truly tapped into her heart and really never tapped into allowing her to enter into a place of safety with me. You know what you sound like? You sound a lot like your father. Mm. The relationship that you had with your father. Remember, you just mentioned he provided for you guys financially. A little bit. Didn't con- well, a little bit, but <laughs> you didn't really connect with him. My dad was him. broke. He didn't provide. Well, he provided for what he could, right? Dad was pining stuff all the time. <laughs> Water got cut off. Lights getting cut off. Barn mm-hmm. money everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and which was interesting because 
that it shaped the way I did my relationship because I would watch how he wasn't providing really well for my family and he wasn't yeah. doing well for my, with my mom. He wasn't like showering her with gifts. He wasn't honoring her on her birthday or giving her gifts for Christmas or anniversary. He wouldn't even remember the anniversary. Mm. So I remember when I got married, I said, I'm going to make sure that my wife is spoiled. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make sure that my wife is taken care of. I'm going to buy her. The My ex-wife was never into designer stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I bought her first Louis Vuitton purse, you know, and she's like, you know, I really like all this, but thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I always try to perform from that standpoint, from a financial standpoint, when I should have focused a lot of my efforts in performing from a heart perspective. Mm -hmm. So when the marriage started to fall apart, right, before she knew that it was falling apart, do you think that you stepped out out of animosity towards what you were not getting from your wife? Or do you think you really were being slick and I can have both worlds? Oh, no. I felt like I was uh, self-sabotaging my marriage. So you knew. I knew if she found out it's going to be over. Mm -hmm. But and, but she gave me grace that when when you know when it was brought to attention, I told her and all this type of stuff. I went and did the work to go through therapy, and I said, you know what, I'm gonna go. I didn't like me at that point. Mm -hmm. I was like, I I just don't like you, Latares, because mm -hmm. I was a guy that would always reprimand my homeboys for cheating on their wives, cheating on their girlfriends. I'm like, why would you get married and cheat? That doesn't even make sense to me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I became that which I despised, I said I need to go get some help. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I. I um, enrolled myself into therapy so that I can help uh, excavate a lot of that childhood trauma and pain. Did you go to the, you know, back in the day, you would have to go to the pastor of the church. And yeah. The pastor would sit you down and, and you would have to go before the church and admit your. No, nah, we don't do that. Indiscretions. You didn't yeah. have to do that. No, no, no. Okay, so you guys were able to handle this privately? Yeah, we did it privately, but then I had, I had to get some accountability around me. I did have a associate pastor at my church I went and talked to him and confided in him and then they had a whole program at my church called Celebrate Recovery where we from people from alcoholism from people who's just dealing with childhood trauma whatever your hurts habits and hangups were that you had a safe space to come share that and go through this year process of healing and so I went there so let me ask you this do you believe in your heart that marriages can happen without infidelity or do you think that that is going to eventually be a part of every marital story you know you see people who've been married for 50 years 70 years and you're like oh my god this is so great and then you'll talk to auntie and grand and you don't know your granddaddy or your uncle put me through do you think that that is eventually a part of every marriage absolutely not i believe that some people have the capacity to actually do marriage right and not have to step out to have those needs met from a sexual standpoint. I've met people who um, have had relationships where it didn't lead to fidelity. Um, but as you say, a lot of it has been the case. A lot mm -hmm. of the people that we've seen that have ha you know hashtag relationship goals, mm -hmm. that they've gone through that at the beginning of their relationship and they've grown from that and their relationship has gotten stronger since then. Mm-hmm. And, and so this relationship goes is, I think, is a major problem that most relationships are dealing with. I think a lot of the relationships that are ending in divorce today is primarily because they can't meet the expectations of these relationship goals. 100%. So, okay, so you, you and your wife are trying to work through marital counseling. You're fighting for your marriage. Why did it not? I, I just felt like it was best for me to just walk away from it. So eventually one day you woke up? And just said, I'm I filed just, for divorce. You filed for divorce. Yep. 
Okay. I, I used to liken my marriage to the cursed fig tree. The Bible talks about Jesus passing by a fig tree that wasn't bearing fruit in season, and he cursed that fig tree. I felt like my marriage wasn't producing the fruit that it needed to produce. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you feel like if you had not stepped out, it probably could have? No, because it was a problem. That's what ended up leading me to step out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like a catch-22. It's like if I would have... When I look back at it, at 45, speaking to my 28-year-old self, never invite another woman into the into your relationship. Mm -hmm. Never step outside of your relationship and violate these vows that you that you took. These are mm -hmm. oaths that you took. You stood before family and friends and said, "I will honor this woman." Mm -hmm. And so that's hindsight being 2020. But. I've seen a lot of relationships recover from that. Uh -huh. And what led from my, you know, the divorce wasn't, me cheating didn't lead to the divorce. I'll just leave it like that. That wasn't what caused me to file for divorce. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just other issues that I felt like we just wasn't in alignment with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in marriage, there's ups and downs. There's ebbs and flows that could have been one of your down periods that you could have. Do you ever look back on your marriage and say, we maybe could have worked through this? Nope. Never? Absolutely not. Because okay. when I make a decision, I make mm -hmm. a decision. I've, I've waited. So even though I made a uh, file for divorce um, in my ninth year, mm -hmm. the other thing, I was contemplating it year five. Mm -hmm. So then you have five, you have four years of literally like, this just ain't working. But I didn't mm -hmm. want to file for divorce because I didn't want to feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be the one that you cheated and then you're going to have the audacity to, to, to divorce the woman. Mm -hmm. She hasn't divorced you. And so it was all this stuff that I was rationalizing in my mind and and fighting through, uh, fighting with my faith and what my principles were with trying to um, um, keep the marriage together and hold on to the marriage. It, it, it was a lot. It was a lot of mental anguish that I was going through for those four years, but it was the wisest decision I ever made. Mm -hmm. um, even to this very day, like even my, my ex-wife, we still have a great relationship. I'm about to close on the house actually tomorrow. Um, and she's my realtor. Uh, that's that's representing me, that's you know? And so, and it's always been that I prayed the prayer while I was going through the divorce. And I said, God, teach me how to divorce my wife with grace. Mm -hmm. And what I was wanting is that if I could cover her heart, even though I mismanaged it in our marriage, Marriage, what we always had was a solid friendship. Mm -hmm. And so I said, if you can show me through strategy on how to cover my wife with grace, then we could actually the, have this marriage dissolve with minimizing the damage as much mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did. That's amazing. That's amazing. So you move on from the divorce and then we fast forward into the right before the pandemic. How did you know that taking the pain of going through your divorce and now looking for that perfect person. How did you know that that was to be dear future wifey? An interesting thing too, I want to touch on you said looking for that perfect person. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking for perfection. Okay. I'm looking for purpose. And so uh, I'm yeah, not, what are you looking for? So in purpose, what does that mean? Meaning someone that joins along, uh, joins along my vision alongside my vision and we do this work together that we are our hearts match our the our hearts are tethered together in purpose and so where 
Um, I want her to join me on my podcast. I want her to be able to flow with me and what I believe God's purpose is in my life. I want us to go and do work in the foster care arena. I want us to go, um, whether we're adopting kids or she's working uh, with my my boy's home I'm about to open up in the next couple of years, Kingdom Royale. I want her to have a heart for kids. I want to have a heart for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I want a woman that joins me in purpose and we do this thing together. Has it been difficult finding that woman? It's been challenging. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 just interesting. It's interesting because I hear the dating the dating pool is not all that, and I know it's not good on the side of the women. But I hear <laughs> from men. I hear you guys say it's not much to choose from over there either. No, it's a lot to choose from. Oh, it is. Yeah, okay. I say if a man says it's not a lot to choose from, I'm like, where are you at? Mm-hmm. Like, because because quality. The I mean, quality. Quali- I, I, the only time I'm talking is women's okay. quality. Okay. Um, it's it's a lot of amazing women in this world. Okay. Where I actually talk to my brothers and be like, what are y'all? Why are y'all not choosing? Mm-hmm. You know, because they don't have the the ideology that I have where it's like, hey, you need somebody to be on this platform. You need somebody to do this. You need, you know, do ministry. They're just saying, I want a good woman. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, if that's all you're looking for, I know a lot of good women. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like, that's all I know is good women. That's all I associate. Mm-hmm. My friends are good women. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would just, any dudes that are saying that they looking for a good woman, shoot, holler at me. Mm-hmm. I, I'll put you down. Now, would, now, how would a good woman that is also in line with your ministry. How would she get your attention, though? Just being herself. I say that a woman should, I say a man should pursue and not persuade, and a woman should present and not pursue. What does that look like? If she, I always tell people, I give people the cheat code to my heart or the cheat code to my attention, I say, listen, I'm posting videos three, four times a week, um, highlighting my episodes. If you, I read all my comments. So if you leave a comment and be like, hey, listen, I love this episode, this right here, this spoke to me, this real spoke, blah, 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 I'm reading those comments. I'm a sapiosexual, so I'm turned on by intellect, mm-hmm. and I'm turned on by wit. So if you're dropping something and it's funny, or I'm, you're showing me your intellect, and I'm like, hold on. And then I'll go to your page, I look and be like, all right, she, she looks nice. Let's mm-hmm. see what she's talking about on, on her page. I go look through your stories, I go look through your comments, see what you're talking about. If it resonates, then I'm going to leave a comment under your stuff. Mm-hmm. Or I may slide in your DM, be like, hey, I like <laughs> when you said such and such and mm-hmm. such. Girl, where you live? Oh, I live in Atlanta. Oh, you live in Atlanta? Well, I'm going to be there. You know, my publicist, Candace, got me going to do this press thing. I'm going mm-hmm. you know, to be over there, you know, uh, you know, this weekend. Oh, okay. So it's just going to always happen naturally. It's not something that has to be forced. Just a conversation. But this is the thing. How do you know now that you are a public figure? And I know Candace has to watch out for this, that somebody's not setting you up in them DMs. Well, I'm, I have a strong sense of discernment. Like, I'm, a, I'm an old player. So, so you know, I, um, like I told you, I used to be in them streets, even when I wasn't supposed to be in them streets. <laughs> and so I can I can hear, and you can only hold that thing so long. Mm-hmm. And I have a strong sense of discernment. Uh, I pray. So if I'm talking to somebody and I see some stuff that's misaligned, then I'm like, and I don't move. I don't move fast. Like I don't. I don't trust a lot of women. I'm not going mm-hmm. to be at your house. I'm not about to be at your apartment. I'm just. Not, I'm not going to be in close proximity. I'm, a lot of the dates we're going to be out in the public. That's you right. know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not. I'm not thirsty. I'm not desperate. And I'm gonna mm-hmm. see how long you can last by seeing how long you can show your authentic self, or, or am I just introduced to your representative? Mm-hmm. So then we create, dear future wifey, right? Yeah. 
three years in, it just seems like this phenomenon is just seems like it's so much longer than just three years. Yeah. But in these three years, and you were able to interview some of the most memorable viral moments. The young lady whose wig fell yep. off. Oh, just I, witty. Yes, that was an and and that was not anything planned. That no, really that was, was. Let me tell you something. This woman had came. This is the backstory of that. Uh, Whitney is a, a personal friend of mine. Mm -hmm. Been a friend of hers for about a year and a half prior to that video taking place. And mm -hmm. I would just always give her advice on how to elevate her social media content. Well, one day I called her and I said, I'm going to have you come on the podcast one day to talk about you being a virgin. And she was like, all right, all right. So then um, that was in the season of these dating streets. I hit her up and I was like, before the end of this season, I'm going to have you. She called me about a couple of weeks uh, after that moment and said, listen, I don't know when you're planning on having me, but I'm about to take a break from social media. She said, I'm just not feeling it. And I'm like, what's going on? She said, I mean, she was in, she was in tears. And I was like, hold on. I'll tell you what. It was on a Friday. I said, I'll tell you what. I don't have a guest for this upcoming Wednesday. So how about I buy you a flight? You come to Dallas. Um, and I just believe God is going to do something in your life that's going to change your life forever. And she was like, well, I'm going to lean on your faith because right now I don't have any. She said, I'm going to come. I bought her the flight. She flew in Saturday. We went to eat Sunday. I had just joined this church. This was last, this was last September. Mm -hmm. Just joined this church. She came to my new members orientation class with me after church. We went to record the episode. She said, you got a lot of men looking at your podcast. I may find my husband after, <laughs> after your episode is released. Mm -hmm. She goes in the bathroom, changes, come back. She sits down. I had no idea that was a wig on her head because it's natural. It looks like natural hair. <laughs> so, hey, I'm a dude through and through so I can't tell lace fronts from wigs from all of those I just don't know so then she sat down and <laughs> that thing started slipping and the more it kept slipping that, that bad boy fell off and I was just like Ooh. I don't know what to do right now that I think also had the podcast go and extremely viral yeah it took off that video got over 100 million views yeah worldwide. I was like oh my god so she didn't ask you to cut it out yes in the episode, I leave every I left everything in there, and she was like, "Are you gonna leave this in?" Because I didn't want to cut it out, and then I I don't edit my episodes; we just talk raw. Mm -hmm. So she was like, "You gonna leave that in?" I said, "Yeah, I got to because I don't edit people's when we talk, we talk." Mm -hmm. And so I said, "That's what makes my podcast so authentic." Mm -hmm. And then she just said, "Wow!" And then she said, "Well, hey, I, I've surrendered it to the Lord." And so after the episode, I asked her, I was like, you know, I want to put out there. She don't want to be out there like that. So I said, what, what is bringing your apprehension? She said, well, two things. A, people always give me compliments on my saying I'm wearing my natural hair. And I'd be like, thank you, sis. And she <laughs> said, so now they're going to know I'm a fraud. And she said, and I said, nigga, on, on, on the Ooh. podcast. She said, she said, so I can't. You know, I don't want people to know as a Christian, I use that word. Mm -hmm. I said, girl, be yourself. It don't matter. And then I said, matter of fact, here, I normally don't let people preview their episodes before I release it. I said, but here, come in the room in my editing suite. And then she looked at it and I said, is it that bad? And she was like, you know what? I don't care. Just go ahead and do what you do. Mm -hmm. And changed the life. Did it work out? So it worked out in her favor. Changed the life. Changed the girl, the girl went from 100 or? 
Went from 177,000 followers to over 600,000. I got her a brand deal. Uh, I actually started managing her. Got her a brand deal from um, that the wig company in which the wig that she was wearing just so happened that they watched my podcast. Mm-hmm. So he was leaving a comment on my YouTube channel. And I was like, hold on. They over trying to get clout off your wig. She was like, that is the wig company. That's a wig company I've been trying to get a brand deal with for the last six months. I said, well, let's see if they'll answer my call. Mm-hmm. I hit them up on Instagram. They responded uh, immediately. And 24 hours later, I was able to secure her a five-figure deal. So it was mm. like, it was just five-figure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was, it was just really, really. It was just, it just happened really, really quick. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then what was having her in depression, having to go to corporate America when she has so much more to offer to this world by way of her art and entertainment. She was able to leave corporate America at the uh, earlier part of this year. Okay. And now she's a full-time content creator. That's amazing. And so before you started, Dear Future Wife, I know you said that you were a videographer and you had your own studio and so forth. So were you in corporate America at the same time as that? No, I've always been. I've been self-employed since the age of 24. Okay. Yeah, after that, I was doing national plays. I was touring shows across the country, been here at the Fox Theater and the Atlantic Civic Center, you know, toured around my plays all across the country from Canada all the way down to Beaumont, as far west as Rochester, New York. and I mean, east as Rochester and west, um, all the cities in California. So you always had to make something out of nothing. Yeah, always. Yep. So you ended up getting one of the most um, coveted interviews which was Denea Jackson. Yeah. She spoke to you, I believe, first. Right. Before speaking to anyone else. And um, and I, then I saw that you did a balanced interview by having Derek on thereafter. Um, before we talk about the two interviews, I just want to ask you, do you feel the feedback that Derek is getting is unjust as far as, you know, women sometimes get a little bit more sympathy than men? Do you think that there's a fairness in the way that people are viewing the episodes? At first, I thought that, but then I really I understand why. I understand why because of how he created his platform. His platform was always um, criticizing men, and and this is just biblical. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. So he would talk about the very thing that he is. Mm -hmm. So he would criticize men that were you know, quote unquote F boys. He would criticize uh, women who were giving too much attention to men that wasn't showing up in their lives the way that he said that they should be showing up. And then um, he created an empire teaching women this. And then when they found out that he was the very thing that he was trying to warn them against, it broke a lot of people's hearts. It broke a lot of uh, people's faith. Then you have her come on to do this apology video with him. She's not in shown in the best light. Mm-hmm. So now they're looking at like, wow, here's this man that's always making sure that he looks great in all his interviews. And now his wife is put out there like that, mm-hmm. which made me have uh, be very intentional on how I repositioned her uh, back to the world. So I made sure that we had a makeup artist. I made sure that she, you know, I talked to her. What are you going to wear? How are you going to have your hair? All this, because I didn't want her to be beat up again while trying to share her truth and share her heart. She looked amazing. You did an excellent job with that. Um, I did see that you got a lot of flack, though, from people who felt as if, you know, when she would share certain parts of her vulnerabilities, you know, there was moments of I think uncomfortability on your end when you may have you know maybe had an uncomfortable giggle or something of that magnitude 
you know, interviewing her, knowing what she's going through, seeing the feedback that because you know everybody's going to be judgmental sitting on the other side. They right. didn't have to go through it. You know, how did you feel about it? Did you ever want to respond to those folks that are like, hey, should he have been the one to interview her? How do you feel about that? I always say this. I always take people's feedback with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. One thing that she and I had, and she'll still say this the very day, and she left the whole comment on there. They was like, y'all don't get my comedy. Y'all don't get my sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And she, when when I did my pre-interview with with, with her, we were cracking up. We were laughing because I was like trying to figure out did she have mental illness? What's mm-hmm. up with her? Because if she was dealing with some mental illness, I wasn't going to bring on the podcast and explore mm-hmm. her. But then I recognized that she was hilarious. The girl is brilliant. So I was like, oh, this girl is funny. So what people didn't see on, they couldn't, they just don't know. It was a moment that me and her had for those three hours where we're cracking up, we're laughing. She's saying this funny, she, she has this Seinfeld humor where she does these, uh, she's very sarcastic. So she's dropping this little stuff. And my background being a theater director, I understand those nuances. Mm-hmm. And so I'm laughing. What happens with a lot of women is that they watch videos from the lens of their trauma. That's right. And so they're not able to laugh at it because they're still in it or they haven't been healed from it. Whereas she and I was laughing. If she was mm-hmm. offended by it, she would have got up and walked away. Mm-hmm. She was cracking up. Matter of fact, when we were over it, it was three hours. I said, all right, we did two episodes. We done. She's like, come on, let's keep on. I'm having fun. I'm like, I'm talking to my homeboy. And so at the end of the day, she was very offended by the way people. And she said this, this was so profound. She said, I feel like the audience is doing to me exactly what Derek did to me, trying to tell me what, how I'm supposed to receive something, how I'm supposed to feel about something. She said, I love this interview. She said, I wouldn't have done it. She said, there's no way I could have talked for three hours about the most horrific moments of my life had you not created such a safe space for me and allowed me to operate in this place of vulnerability where it was light. Mm -hmm. Because she said, if you kept it heavy or if I'm saying this stuff and you're looking at me serious and like, wow. She said, I would have probably fell on the floor and started crying. Mm -hmm. She said, but you, you was picking up on my jokes or whatever. She said, I tested you at the very beginning to see how you would respond to it. And then when you, when you started laughing, I was like, good. And then, and that's why I uh, brought up in Derek's interview. I said, Hey Derek, I said, was that one of the things you love most about her is her, her comedy and wit? He said, yes. Among other things. Yes. He said, she is hilarious. So a lot of people didn't pick up on that. And um, and so they said that. They was just like, well, I mean, it could have been, she should have been interviewed by a woman. She should, it was a whole lot of women reaching out to her. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of people reaching out to her to, to do the interview. And she said, no, this is the place I feel safest. Mm-hmm. So when, and I know just most recently, you just, you know, came off tour. So you have now learned the art of monetization of this platform that you have. When did you know that you were sitting on a million dollar brand? Um, after, well, this year, this year when I'm about to make a half a million dollars this year, mm-hmm. you know. And so at that point, I was like, OK, this is something different, mm-hmm. you know, because, again, the first two years I was just focused on healing, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't even know how to monetize it outside of YouTube. I was like, OK, YouTube. I said, if I can make twenty thousand dollars a month on YouTube, I'm doing something. Mm-hmm. And then I was like making 
anywhere from three thousand dollars to on a good month, which only came twice in two years, was four thousand dollars. So I was just like, all right, well, you know, this is cool. I do four videos a month and I make three thousand dollars. I can't be mad at that. Mm-hmm. And I said, but hopefully one day I can make twenty thousand dollars. And so, and that's what I've been consistently making this whole year is twenty thousand plus. Mm-hmm. And so, what's next for the dear future wifey brand? Man, I'm gonna do a movie. I have books coming out. Um, been I just signed with this amazing literary agent, uh, Jan Miller, and so we got movies. I want to do reality shows. Um, a whole. You want to be of, one of the stars on the show? Oh, uh, I want to be the host of it. Okay, I'll be the host to curate these relationships and see if we can have a reality show where we people can actually find love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are you uh, against actually taking Dear Future Wifey to a major network, or do you want to always own it on on the you know YouTube platform that you currently have? No, I was in talks with a network back in March about bringing it to their platform, mm-hmm. um, but then you know strikes and production, all that stuff uh, began to. Impede on the deal, and so you know, maybe God will have us circle back around for that opportunity to take place. But I'm always open to expansion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of it's a lot of work trying to do this on my own. So if someone steps a great a major network comes in and say, "Hey, I find value in what what you're doing." And um, then I'm totally open for it. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming out today, sitting with us, sharing some of your most intimate details. It's very, it's an honor. Um, Thank you so much, Mr. Whitfield. And we want to say we'll see you next time on Chronology. Thank you. Need no money. If you're constantly worried about what everybody else got to say. If you constantly got your eyes on what everybody else doing, you ain't getting no money. When it comes down to closing the deal, I get you done. Everything one. Welcome to Coinology, the podcast.